We're wrapping up a week of news discussions today. Yes, on a Thursday, there will not be an episode tomorrow. We're taking a rare day off on this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We will be back Monday. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, Jane Cahoon. So happy Thursday, Friday. <laughs> Yay. I know I'm, I'm really going to miss talking to you guys, but such is life. Let's begin. Who's number one and who's a very surprising but strong number two in the Merrill poll that Baldwin Wallace University released Wednesday? Layla Tassi, the biggest finding of this is most people have no idea who the candidates are, but in the people who did express an interest, I don't think anybody expected Bashir Jones to be ahead of some of the other candidates. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So this poll was conducted via uh, live telephone conversations with 421 Cleveland residents who participated. And and we should note that they're not necessarily registered voters, but Cleveland residents. Um, they were asked about their familiarity with the candidates and, and also who their first and second choices would be for, for mayor. And among the 52 percent of those participants who stated their preferences, Former Mayor Dennis Kucinich and Councilman Bashir Jones uh, registered the highest with them. Uh, 18% preferred Kucinich to Jones's 13%. Kucinich was the most well-known of any of the potential mayoral hopefuls. More than half of the residents, 54%, were very familiar with Kucinich. But he hasn't declared that he's going to run. He's just openly kind of considering it and raising money. Another 24% were somewhat familiar with him, while 22% said that they were not familiar at all with Dennis Kucinich, which is kind of surprising to me because, <laughs> I mean, he's just, you know, baked into the history around here. Um, Zach Reed was second place in voter familiarity. 40% were very familiar. 30 were somewhat familiar. Bashir Jones, 27% of her respondents were very familiar with him. Um, City Council President Kevin Kelly State Senator uh, Sandra Williams, um, they were in the teens of percentages in terms of, of familiarity. Uh, Lane Griffin registered on this poll, even though he's opting out of the race. And then in the single digits came in uh, Justin Bibb, Dick Noth, Ross DiBello, um, you know, all all in the lower lower registers here. So, um, yeah, I mean, there there were two things in this that were instructive to me, and we're going to do a story on one of them, that that because this isn't registered voters, as you pointed out, it's just people, and the bulk of them have no idea who the candidates are. And given that, that Cleveland had such a, ver a low turnout in the presidential election, I'm betting most of those people won't vote that because they haven't been, and that this election will turn on the tiniest of numbers, which means that the people who are starting to emerge in this kind of a poll might see some good news in it. It's not going to take much to do it. The second mm -hmm. thing that struck me, the Bashir Jones thing just surprised me. Kevin Kelly has been in council forever. He's been council president for, what, eight, 12 years. And he has, he has fewer people saying they would vote for him by a good number than Bashir Jones, who just arrived on the scene three years ago as a council member. But he's this community activist. He's everywhere. He's pushing issues that seem to resonate with people. And I just wonder if he is the 2021 version of Michael R. White, who came out of nowhere in, in 2018. He'd served in the legislature. He'd been on council. But he, he took the place by storm, beat George Forbes, beat other candidates that were very, very well known. 
by being the street activist. Justin Bibb, I think, wanted to be that guy, but no one knows who he is, and he's not that active. Bashir seems to be gathering it. Did anybody else think that they would see Bashir Jones doing this well? He hasn't even announced yet. No, I, I, I'm surprised at that, too. And, and I'm, I'm also surprised at how few people recognize the name Kevin Kelly because he's the council president and he's, uh, you know, at the helm of, of, you know, any initiative that's come out of city council. I mean, he's been the leader. I mean, he was he was the driving force behind like the infant mortality initiative. And and, uh, you know, at least they might recognize him from things like, you know, the fight against the uh, $15 minimum wage in Cleveland, which I thought would be the death knell of his campaign. But it just turns out that his the lack of familiarity might be the death knell of his campaign. So um, that's well, interesting to me that more people would be more people are on the, you know, the Bashir Jones uh, bandwagon and, and want to, you know, are, are ready to vote for him than even recognize the name Kevin Kelly. So and and. The, the thing that that is Kevin Kelly just doesn't have that charisma. He's a good guy. He's a policy wonk, but it's He's hard smart, for him yeah. to energize mm-hmm. people. Here's the thing. There are a whole bunch of people in town that are petrified. Dennis Kucinich will be mayor again. Lots of business interests. There's all sorts of people and they're like desperate to support somebody else. And they've been lining up behind Kevin Kelly. I wonder if they see a poll like this and say, look, if this is all about just keeping Dennis Kucinich out, maybe we should line up behind Bashir Jones because there's something going on there. And if it, if it comes down to anybody but Dennis, get behind somebody that's got some momentum. It'll be interesting to see. I, mm-hmm. I you know Bashir doesn't have you know we've talked about Justin Bibby has zero government experience and zero um, a, a kind of the experience you need to run a city. Bashir Jones doesn't have much more. He's been a councilman for no. three years, right? And he hasn't been kind of central and active in the process of being a council person. He's been much more the street organizer and the guy that that is listening to residents and trying to do policies to help them, like, you know, trying to get women into uh, um, shooting training so that they'll have concealed carry permits. So I don't know. It's it'll be interesting to see if people start pulling back from Kevin Kelly and looking elsewhere, because after all of the time he's been out there, people don't know who he is. Mm-hmm. I, I think I personally think it's still a little early in the campaign season. People are just announcing their candidacy. I think that a, an effective door to door shoe leather campaign could really make a difference for any one of these guys. So it's COVID, um, though. Are you going to answer your door? <laughs> well, that's the thing. People are desperate to talk to someone. They will they will maybe, open the door just maybe. to have a face to face conversation. <laughs> anyway, it was it's an interesting poll. It's early, but we haven't seen much in the way of polling in the mayor's race. It was good to for Baldwin Wallace to add a couple of questions about it to a survey about schools, which we'll be talking about elsewhere. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Now that it's dead in the water, do we know if the Republican effort to undo some of the voter-approved restraints on gerrymandering was a good faith effort or an underhanded way to continue gerrymandering? Jane Cahoon, I said from the outset I didn't trust him, and I thought this was an underhanded (laughs) way to continue gerrymandering. It's dead because there were lots of people that thought like we did. But what do you think? Is was this for real? I mean, what finally killed it? What do I think? Well, it's clear what you think. I I was just going to say it's really something we can only speculate about because, you know, we never actually saw this amendment and what it actually said. But, you know, I'm with you as far as having the antenna up that 
you know, they could use this as an opportunity to make the process at the very least less transparent and more rushed. So the 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 bottom line is that Republicans, uh, number one, Matt Huffman, the Senate president, realized that without bipartisan support, they they you know didn't didn't have a good chance of succeeding by putting this constitutional amendment on the August ballot, which they had a deadline of um, yesterday to do that, and and it didn't materialize. So so yes, it's dead. But uh, they wanted to extend deadlines for the state legislative redistricting because those deadlines come up first. They come up um, in early September, and um, they they would have had to have had like a sixty percent vote in both the House and Senate to do this, but which they could get, but. Uh, as Huffman said, it, it just would be a fool's errand to, to do this without bipartisan support. And the Democrats in the legislature, they expressed deep doubts about this. They, they just said, as I said, it could be less transparent. And uh, they apparently had some discussions over the weekend, but they just said there's, there wasn't time to fully vet something like this. And, um, you know, so meanwhile, we're not expecting the whole reason for this is because we have delayed census data because of the pandemic and uh, the we're just going to have to wait for the data until, you know, mid-August or, or September. And they might have to go to the Ohio Supreme Court to to ask for more flexibility, which I think is something that uh, is preferred by by the Democrats. Well, let me let me point out too. The reason we don't trust them is because 10 years ago, they snuck off into a hotel room to secretly plot out the most gerrymandered districts the state has ever seen. I mean, their their history is is bad and history is a predictor of future behavior. Do you remember who the politicians who led that effort were? Oh boy, now you've uh, tricked me here. I'm I'm trying to remember. You was know, John Houston involved in that. Uh, yeah, that's what I want to say that that uh, that he was in there, unless he was Secretary of State at the time. But uh, you know, John Boehner controlled a lot from Congress uh, at the time. But I'm trying to think of who the. I know yeah. I'll get it wrong if I because we're talking about. 2011 for the 2012 election. So we should I, do a story again to remind people just of how bad that was. It was bunker. one of the sleaziest things politicians have ever done in this state. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and it did such a disservice to the voters for 10 years. We've been paying mm-hmm. the price for that sleazy step they took to secretly plot out ridiculous gerrymandering. That's why we don't trust them to undo (laughs) what the voters did. So good. It's dead in the water. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. A federal judge has vacated a CDC-imposed moratorium on evictions. A moratorium, Cleveland housing experts say, stopped us from seeing a wave of evictions during the pandemic. So, Leila Tassi, what does this mean now for Cleveland? Will we see that wave or is there going to be a lot more legal wrangling? This is a tough one because, like you said, it really kept people housed during this pandemic. But a U.S. district judge ruled that the CDC doesn't have the authority to enact such a sweeping moratorium, which was set to expire June 30th. So it's not immediately clear how this ruling this week will impact that sunset date for the moratorium. But this all stems from a lawsuit that was filed by rental property managers and realtor trade associations in Alabama and Georgia. But the judge has made it clear that her order 
uh, actually applies across the country. The Justice Department Civil Division has appealed the decision and uh, will ask a court to halt this ruling while that appeal works its way through the system. But, um, you know, legal aid and housing advocates have, have really credited the moratorium and all of the available streams of rental assistance with keeping people in their houses throughout the pandemic. Ohio received about $1.5 billion for rental assistance since the pandemic began, which was dispersed through a couple programs in Cuyahoga County. But, you know, depending on, on when this ruling actually does take effect, if it's appealed and how that shakes out, this could really be devastating for many families. We could see that tidal wave of evictions filed or, or worse. We could see homelessness on a very big scale, families vacating their homes to kind of preempt eviction. We could see people crowding into shelters or doubling up with friends or family when we should still be keeping our distance from one another at this stage in the pandemic. It's obviously dangerous as far as the pandemic's concerned, but there's also that toll that housing insecurity takes on children. I mean, it's it's a real trauma to be uprooted and forced to figure out a new housing arrangement or or end up in a shelter or crashing on someone's okay. someone's couch. I, I, so, I, I, I think we all agree that housing and shelter are really important, but there are a couple of issues here that that are worth discussing. And it did it did feel like this was an overreach for the CDC. This did not feel like the kind of thing they were created for. The other thing here is if the government feels that it's important to keep people in their homes during the pandemic, they shouldn't penalize a class of people to do that. I mean, the landlords who made money and made their living by renting housing suddenly had their income dry up. If the government felt it was that That's important, true. they should have made the landlords whole instead of forcing. I mean, this is a deprivation of property rights. If I own a house that I'm renting to somebody for cash and they stop paying me the cash, then I'm being deprived of my rightful property by the government. And that, that always seemed like it was unfair to me. I just, I couldn't understand how that could continue. The, the answer is that with all that money that was flying around, pay the landlords for the rent if you really want to do it. There was some of that. I mean, Cuyahoga County, Laura Johnston got what, five, 10 million that they provided to people to pay their rent to stay in their homes. Right, uh, outside I, the city. Yeah. And I think Cleveland did some of that, too. It's just this. The, the, I, I have a hard time faulting the judge here for making the call because this seemed like it was the wrong way to affect the policy to accomplish the things you mentioned, Layla, that are so important. But so I'll tell you how the policy should change now. I, I think the moment is upon us to start talking about universal housing vouchers so that times of financial instability like this don't translate into housing insecurity. And this was a major point, a major plank of, of Biden's uh, housing policy platform. And, uh, you know, that would be a game changer in the, across the country. But imagine, imagine how how life changing that would be for people in, in Cuyahoga County. So, you know, I'm hopeful that 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 will start making, uh, um, you know, getting gaining some traction in, in Washington now that we have Marsha Fudge at the helm of uh, of HUD. Um, exactly. So, yeah, let's that's hope how I feel. she knows she knows the need. She's from here. She knows how desperately it's needed. And hopefully she will move in that direction. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
Cuyahoga County finally provided proof of what it did with its share. So why won't Cleveland reveal where it has placed its portion of the money from the Huntington Bank naming rights of the convention center? Laura Johnson, you were pretty outraged about this story yesterday (laughs) because it's yet another example of Cleveland refusing to provide information. It's been a hallmark of this administration, and we need to really make this an issue in the mayoral race. I agree we need to make it an issue because I feel like everybody knows that Cleveland doesn't provide records and Cleveland doesn't answer questions and we all just kind of like, oh, it's Cleveland again. But really, I feel like we should be outraged every time this happens because this government matters and they should be providing answers to people. And in this case, we're talking about millions of dollars that came from the naming rights of the Huntington Convention Center downtown. And the county says, you know, here's where our money is. We've been putting it in this account. It's it's meant for renovations and upgrades to the convention center. And the city's saying, you should go ask the county. And the county's like, we can't tell you what the city's done with this money. And if this matters because the board that oversees the convention center wants to upgrade the Medical Mart, the Global Center for Healthcare Innovation, into an extension of the convention center, it's going to cost something like $30 million. So they like some of that money. And Cleveland's supposed to spend theirs on improving the grassy mall above theirs. But so far, they have not answered questions or said where the money is. Here's the thing. Tonight, I think at 530, Frank Jackson is having a teletown hall that has been built up into something important. And many people think he's announcing he's not going to run. Maybe, though, he's going to say he has seen the light. And for the last seven months of his administration, they're going to be a public records. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Can you just see him standing on the front of City Hall and just like throwing sheaves of paper out like, you requested this. You requested this. We're giving it all to you We're now. giving it all. We're going to be transparent. We've seen the light and we know we need to Chris, be. Chris, you're seeing show. unicorns again. <laughs> yeah, it's been a ridiculous run of, of difficulty in getting records. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What do people in Cleveland think of the job that the Cleveland School District is doing, according to a new Baldwin-Wallace University poll? And what else did we learn from a pretty long series of questions put together by BW's Tom Sutton? Jane Cahoon, we talked about this poll because it had a couple of questions on a mayor's race in a previous segment, but the poll was really about Cleveland attitudes about the schools. So what do we know? Yeah, they really went deep on the schools issue and the results were interesting. The the overall takeaway, I think, is that people who have kids in the school system seem pretty satisfied with it and they think highly of the teachers and the staff. But overall, you know, the results were a little less positive. That's when you include the entire sample of people, which includes people who don't have school children. And um, also a majority of graduates of the school system had positive views of it. But this is the telephone survey that we referred to when we were talking about the mayor's race, 421 Cleveland residents by Baldwin Wallace's Community Research Institute headed by Tom Sutton. And that was conducted March 15th to April 29th, a little longer than the usual time frame because of COVID restrictions on the number of people they could have in the call center. But anyway, of those uh, 421 people, about 26% of them had one or more children enrolled in a K-12 school in the city. That includes not just the public school system, but charter and private schools. But of those, 83% think teachers do their best to help children learn. 
Uh, 90% agreed that they could share their concerns with teachers. 84% agreed that the school staff are responsible when contacted by parents. 79% are extremely or somewhat likely to recommend their kids' school to other parents. And it goes, it goes on. But then when you add the overall perceptions of everybody, uh, 22% rated the school district as excellent or good, 26% as fair, and 29% as poor. Uh, 27% think the district is much better or somewhat better than five years ago. Um, and then, you know, as I said, the 60% of, of respondents who, grad, uh, who graduated, uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry, 62% rated their ex education as excellent or good. So, you know, the, the other thing they asked about was challenges during the pandemic, which, you know, we all know about kids trying to learn remotely. Um, a small percentage of those parents said they had problems with the internet or, you know, it was difficult to get questions answered by instructors. Um, but, you know, 28% of them said there, there hadn't been any challenges and that online instruction had gone smoothly. So God, I, I was mean, there surprised were no that, <laughs> I was surprised that the, uh, how, the value question for the taxes, Cleveland has a very, very high tax rate, but it doesn't generate a lot of money because the houses aren't worth a lot like they're in the suburbs. But, but still, I thought with all of the tax increases they've approved, there'd be more negative responses to the value of the dollar. And it wasn't, it was fair to middling, like they're getting value for yeah. their dollar. Yeah, it wasn't a lot of people who said it was too high. The other interesting thing was like people's perceptions didn't always match reality. Like they asked people, what do you think the graduation rate is? And people guessed really low. I mean, it's something like 80% in the school district and they were guessing that it was a lot lower. So, yeah. 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 And 10% of the people thought Armin Budish ran the school district. Maybe that's yeah. those are the ones that think it's not working because yeah. they just figure if the government's not working, it must be Armin Budish. It was good to catch up with uh, Baldwin Wallace. I'm glad they came through the pandemic, still doing polls, looking forward to where they're going to take us on the Senate race and some other things in the future. It's good to catch up with Tom Sutton. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is it proper for Ohio Governor Mike DeWine to appoint a Cleveland Municipal Court judge who has demonstrated a strong pro-police sentiment? Leila Tassi, how can that judge be impartial? I don't know if uh, the judge can be impartial. You know, it's I, I personally don't think this was a, an appropriate appointment. This was questionable all the way around. So Nathan J. Hudek is a 42-year-old former business contracts attorney who hasn't practiced law since 2015 and has no trial court experience. His law license was suspended in 2018 because he wasn't paying his registration fee and wasn't filing some paperwork showing that he completed his continuing legal education. He said he had his he has let his license lapse because he had moved on to a career working as a marketing manager for Destination Cleveland. And then when they laid him off in March 2020, he sought to have his license reinstated. Now, DeWine kind of tapped him out of the blue <laughs> April 21st to join the bench in Cleveland Muni Court after the Cuyahoga County Republican Party submitted his name for consideration. And just a week before that, kind of during the period where he was under consideration, Hudak posted an image of a thin blue line flag on his Facebook page with the phrase, West Park backs the blue, which, of course, we all know is a pro-police refrain that grew in popularity in response to the Black Lives Matter movement. So Cleveland activists and civil rights attorneys told Cleveland.com that the 
that, you know, the post on Facebook calls into question whether he can be impartial when he presides over cases dealing with police officers who are accused of excessive force or making untruthful statements in their reports or during their testimony. And Hudak defends himself and says that the post was totally innocuous and just meant to show support for his friends and neighbors who are cops and have been working so hard during the pandemic. But, you know, come on now. Unless he lives under a rock, he knows the subtext of a phrase like back the blue. That is an anti-Black Lives Matter rallying cry. And that is just unacceptable for a judge in a city that's under a federal consent decree because the police have shown a pattern and practice of using excessive force on citizens. I think this was a terrible choice on DeWine's part. I'm surprised that that this guy was just one of two uh, potential candidates for this that the that the uh, local GOP said, you know, sent up uh, to DeWine for consideration. I mean, can't can't we do better? Mm-hmm. You should just so. send this into a transcription service because you just <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, check out Corey Schaefer's story on this on Cleveland.com. It's a good piece calling out something that people ought to be aware of, especially if you end up in municipal court. It's this week in the CLE. Has anything improved with mail delivery based on a little test we did? Laura Johnston, this is actually a significant story because it affects everybody because we all get mail and we most of us send mail. And it's distressing what Pete Krause found with his little test. Yeah, this is the second time he's done the test. We started the first one, I think it was February, after we'd written a bunch of stories over the Christmas uh, holidays about just bemoaning the packages and how long things were just sitting at the mail um, centers. I mean, I think we've all had stories of when Christmas cards got delivered. But So it's gotten a little bit better since then. But Pete sent off eight uh, letters, uh, some to Greater Cleveland, some to San Francisco, one to suburban Baltimore, and two to Northern Virginia to see if any of them would get there within the stated time of one to three days. None of them passed that test. And the really interesting part was they dropped off at Beachwood just before 3 p.m. on a Monday. The pickup time posted on the box at 5 p.m., but they were not postmarked until the following day, which you're like, okay, whatever. It's two hours before pickup. Maybe they just didn't get around to it. But a postmark is supposed to start the clock on the delivery, and that's where they start their ratings of how much mail they're delivering on time. So, I mean, that kind of seems like there's a problem right there. None of them had the right postmark. And um, they got some places not too slowly uh letter to north olmstead arrived two days after the postmark one to rocky river was three days uh same as letter sent to columbus but still should it take basically four days to go across the city well the postmark issue allowed i mean that seems sleazy because it allows them to make it look like something is on time because mm-hmm. they get an extra day the most distressing thing is is that the national post office people are going to to do something about this to make sure they're on time they're they're changing the window they're not going to get faster they're going to say it's no longer one to three days it's three to five days and it's like wait that's not the way to get better no no it's not the way to get better but and and everything in ohio is supposed to be delivered within two days and we're not hitting that either so yeah you've always wondered like you know doing this test is really interesting because you're always like when did people get the mail that i sent and um I think it's going to be continue to be a problem, even if it's not the same, you know, nail biting issue that we saw at at Christmas. Okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE with Ohio ready to award 20 million dollars in grants to expand high speed Internet access to areas that lack it. 
Why are all the proponents saying it mostly will go to rural areas? What about underserved Cleveland neighborhoods? Jane Cahoon, we suspected this would happen. We talked about how money for broadband, while we desperately need it here, would go to the rural areas that voted for Mike DeWine. And in this case, it is. Well, I don't know if you can lay this at Mike DeWine's feet. Let's look at our legislature who, you know, the people in charge of it, uh, a lot of them from these rural areas. Uh, But they do say that this bill is going to help Ohioans in every legislative district in the state. So we'll see what kind of pittance, you know, goes to the urban areas. But you're right, it's $20 million in this bill. House Bill 2, it it passed the House um, yesterday, and it's uh, on its way to DeWine for his signature. But the the bill was really going to include a lot more money than that. It initially was going to be $190 million for the next two years, but the lawmakers said they want to work out those details about future funding, like in the ongoing budget negotiations rather than in this bill, because in part, they're waiting to see how much Ohio is going to get in federal broadband grants. So I think there are a lot of unknowns here, plus the, the grants would be awarded by this five-member authority uh, consisting of various, you know, officials and appointees by the governor and the House and Senate, et cetera. So, you know, it's hard to say how this is going to play out. I, I mean, I was thinking, remember recently, DeWine was in East Cleveland to announce a separate initiative uh, that was going to be funded or that will be funded both publicly and privately to expand broadband there. And that was to the tune of like $650,000 to provide uh, affordable internet for people there. So there, there are a number of different efforts. And as I said, you know, I just don't know, like with this extra money that they want to spend, DeWine also has in his budget, like $250 million for broadband expansion. So I think we'll we see. have to see how those things shake out. Yeah. And well, one of the things is that commission doesn't look like it's going to have a Democrat on it, which is distressing. I, I could be wrong, but it looked like to me it was going to be all Republicans. But and and I get it that that in rural areas, it's very expensive to run these lines because you have very few people far and few between. But let's face it, the the Verizons and the AT&Ts have not strung the lines through Cleveland neighborhoods because they're not going to get enough profit from it. So so right. you have a much more compact area with a lot more people that you could serve by spending less money. But and they're as without broadband access as the people living in the middle of nowhere. So we, we need to see the money in urban areas as well. Well, you're right. We'll see what they do. Uh, but but we need to bang the gong hard because Cleveland school kids need broadband access. It's no longer a luxury. It's become a basic right like electricity. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I guess we'll have to leave a discussion on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame class to next week when it's announced. It would have been fun to talk about predictions for it, but we're out of time. Have a good weekend, everybody. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. 